Welcome, welcome, welcome. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, good night, good dawn, good dusk, good crepuscular <laughs> times. I love crepuscular. <laughs> crepuscular is a good word to know. I was really pleased once because I like I knew the word crepuscular in like a really difficult quiz and I felt very smug even though I lost overall, which is What is crepuscular? <laughs> crepuscular means pertaining to dawn and dusk. Yes. Oh. So there are certain animals that are not nocturnal and they're not diurnal. They're crepuscular. Yes. And it's hard to remember unless you think of because it doesn't sound like what it is, so you have to no. think of you have to think of animals crepuscularly walking through the Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> We're gonna actually have people listen Being to this. <laughs> all right, all Dan, right. keep all of this in. This is part of the introduction. <laughs> I think there's also a Thelonious Monk tune called Crepuscular. No, it's Crepuscule. That's well, that different. would surely be the, the noun form. Right, So, like, right. a thing of dawn and dusk? I guess. <laughs> wow, we've, got, we've gone down some roads, and, uh, and we haven't even said our names yet. I am Podmaster General Ashling McRae. Your host, Pete Davis, is not here today. He is, he is on no longer a- with us. No, he is. <laughs> oh, in... On today's show, <laughs> Pete Davis is Pete's fine. He's alive. Fine. <laughs> Don't be afraid. Don't worry. Pete is safe. There <laughs> will be no trouble to any of us. <laughs> All right. With me today, we have amusements and managing editor Lyda Gold. Hi. We have finance editor Sparky Abraham. Hello. We have associate editor Vanessa A.B. Hi. Legal editor Oren Nimney. Hello, everyone. Contributing editor Eli Massey. Howdy. Editor-in-chief Nathan J. Robinson. Hello. And current affairs intern Trotsky. Say hello, Trotsky. He's scratching himself. Meow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> He's crepuscular. He's he crepuscular. is crepuscular. <laughs> Trotsky is a, is a reasonably large gray cat and not the revolutionary of of whom I'm sure we all have various uh, very interesting opinions. So today is the regular voicemail bag episode. We have heard your feedback. We have heard your concerns. We have very much nodded thoughtfully while reading them and listening to them. And we're going to respond to a few of them today. Right. So Let's get started. Hi, Current Affairs. My name is Patricia, a long-time listener, first-time caller. So I was at a gathering recently with some friends from high school, and um, most of my friends from high school are relatively left-leaning, but some are staunch capitalists. But uh, one of the things, a specific person came up and I said, like, but don't you think that if you didn't say the word socialism, but you just, like, described a utopia or, like, you know, some policies that are you know, I think personally I'm pretty unobjectionable. Like, I live in Canada, so having universal pharmacare instead of just universal health care, like, you know, as a good, quote-unquote good, like, good thing before cost. And then even if you explained maybe some of the ways that, that you could pay for those things, like, I think the, the person in question would agree with them. But as soon as you were like, oh, they're an NDP policy, which is like our leftist, most leftist party is, or as like you said, it's a socialist policy. That's the moment when the people kind of get their backs up against the wall. And so I was kind of wondering in the magazine and the podcast, you know, being unabashedly a socialist or unabashedly a leftist, I think has 
is important in terms of normalizing that kind of discourse and chats. <laughs> but I was wondering, like, what you guys think about framing things instead to be more kind of like stealthy almost. Like, do you think that there's a value in writing articles? that don't necessarily frame themselves as leftist or socialist, but instead are kind of there to help, I don't know, trick people into changing their way of thinking. Yeah. Thoughts. Thanks, guys. Bye. That was Patricia with the question of whether to use the word socialism or leftism or not when describing or trying to persuade people or whether we should focus more on kind of describing the policies without ascribing labels that may or may not sort of make people shut down. And Patricia has a capitalist friend, even in this economy. (laughs) Capitalist friends are are worthwhile, actually, because they have money. And therefore you can get nice things (laughs) by being their friend. Sometimes they pay for dinner and stuff. Lida, you're a socialist and you're reducing a capitalist down to their money? That's not... When we were starting off the magazine, this was sort of the... We've shifted a little bit away from this, but this was kind of the idea, was we were just going to describe things like critiques of the current system that made sense and things that we wanted in the world that were good and not really call them anything in particular. And then everyone was just going to suddenly realize that they were a libertarian socialist. <laughs> I think there's some value to, to, to like actually having shorthand ways to talk about things. And, and for that reason, I think there's value in using the word socialism. And also, if really the word is someone's only hang up, then I think they're probably not actually being honest, because I don't think that people are like, I would love free medicine, except I don't like the word socialism in their heart of hearts. They probably have other other objections that they don't want to articulate. But I don't really care about what we call things as long as everyone is happy and and good. If I did believe in tricking people, we wouldn't have called it current affairs. I mean, we would have been more open like Jacobin and called it like Robespierre monthly and, uh, you know. We never would have called it Robespierre. Current affairs affairs is an attempt precisely to say this isn't ideology or politics. This is just the things that are true. The Bakunin brief. <laughs> okay, we might have called it the Bakunin brief. The magazine does do that. It does go back and, and forth. I don't think every article we publish has socialism plastered on it. Like, we definitely take a, like various approaches to doing this work, right? Yeah, I think so. I just think in the beginning, we were a little bit more intentional about just not doing that ever. And now I think it's, you know, when it fits, it fits. And when it doesn't, it doesn't. And we sort of describe things in the way that they are. And I think that's pretty persuasive to people. If it fits, we sit. (laughs) (laughs) Orna, I think you're giving people too much credit. Really? I think that sometimes we are like hurting our cause by using the word socialist on institutional policies or systems that like that are very compatible with someone who has socialist beliefs but could easily be adopted like you know it also maps onto other systems of beliefs and i think you see that sometimes with like civil rights libertarians who may be capitalists in a lot of ways and yet like there are these tiny bubbles where we can both agree that there are certain things that are that just <laughs> i don't i'm trying to stay away from the phrase that like like that are like good sense policies because it's such a hackish term but yeah like sometimes when we claim the word socialism to describe some of these things, I think we kind of foreclose the possibility of like building 
larger support for it, if that makes sense. And I'm in no way saying that we should shy away from using the term when we are describing things that are just like explicitly and exclusively socialist. Well, also, sometimes we're just inaccurate, right? Like, I think sometimes we use socialism a little bit too broadly. Like, I don't think Medicare for all is actually socialist. It's just like a more social form of medicine than we happen to have now. But it's not like, you know, sort of collective ownership of the medical system in this country. And there's a bunch of other systems. No, it's, it's New Deal liberalism. That's that's what it is. It does yeah. socialize the insurance industry, though. Yeah, it socializes the insurance. But even the, you know, sort of the post office isn't a socialist. And they're, they're just more socialized than other things that we currently have. And I think that's a good way to move. I think I agree with what Vanessa is saying. Although I, I'm interested in Sparky's theory that that people just really don't like calling things socialism. I mean, I think that what you said that I think was giving people too much credit was that if people are saying their problem with something is that it's socialism, they have ulterior motives or they have something else going on. I mean, speaking from my own experience, this is kind of like looking back on myself you know, a few years ago, I think that most people don't think of themselves as capitalists or socialists. And it's more just like a cloud of various associations that people have with these words. And so I think like it might be true that if you took a hundred random people on the street and you walked up to them and you were like, I want Medicare for all because it's socialism. And then, you know, a hundred other people, you walked up to them and said, you know, here's this great way that we could run healthcare that would be a lot better for these reasons. Like you might get meaningfully different results, not because those people have ulterior motive. So like, no, I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, there is tactical advantage to it. Also, I just think a lot of people find it kind of annoying to have to try to figure out like, I don't know. I don't think that many people think in terms of political theory as much as we do. I sometimes don't like that like way of, of going about it. Like I realize why it has value, but uh, it's just not very appealing. And so I think if nothing else, like that's a reason not to get too locked into like the, is this a socialist thing? Is it not a socialist thing? Like to some extent, who cares? Yeah. I mean, I think I agree with that. Although I think, I mean, I, I think you could just make constituent arguments underneath socialism, right? So like, okay, here's a policy that I want to propose. I think if it seems more socialized than what we currently have, my, everyone might be like, great, that's leftist. But you might have really good critiques from the left, like it doesn't actually build power in working class, or it doesn't actually shift the balance of class but power between the owning class and the working class, or any of these sorts of things. And I think there are a lot of policies on the margins that look a lot like like that it's useful to be able to say look your policy is perhaps a very good liberal governance but what we want is is sort of a devolution of power like you want nicer bosses and we want no bosses and if you don't call that socialism i think that's fine i think the thing that i was trying to say was usually like if you, you call something socialist someone's like oh i don't like socialism but they have a reason it's like oh because socialism is really authoritarian because look at the ussr or any of these sorts of other things and i think the thing that they don't like right is authoritarianism and i also don't like authoritarianism and but i agree that i don't really care about getting into like a definitional war over whether something is or is not socialism because that seems tedious i think there's like a balance though like we don't get to not care at all either you know like if we look at the fights in congress with some of the really kind of more left-leaning plans that like aoc or bernie or elon omar have like proposed the attack from you know, centrist liberals and attacks from the Republicans are going to be 
and have been to like love that word socialism like it's scary and so in some ways we have to own it to like destigmatize it we can't like fully break from it because the word is still being used to attack these policies you know that we understand as like policies that will more socialize certain things than they are now even if it's not full socialism words are reclaimable you you could have looked at a word like queer 20 years ago and been like you know there's a term of stigmatization only and it doesn't have an you know and, and and but people have reclaimed it and taken it as a term of pride you don't want to necessarily lock into ideological debates and you don't want to you don't want to turn somebody off from an ideology just because they don't like the word but we do need a word and we do need like people need you know something to belong to and i think it's actually like easier than we think to reclaim socialism if you associate it with good things there's studies on this that like younger people our age you know they don't see they don't see socialism as being as negative because they don't associate it so much with the ussr because they don't remember the ussr and also even when they do it doesn't quite hit the same as it does for older generations because boomers say stuff like, did you know that in Soviet Russia, people had to live in really badly maintained apartments with like six <laughs> other people? It's like, wow, what would that be like? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, so I agree with all that. And I think that like there's also a difference between kind of offensive and defensive tactics, right? And like, clearly we are reclaiming it. That's good. But also, I don't want to get to the point, and I feel like sometimes the discourse gets to this point where it's like, it's kind of circular. We're like, oh, this policy is good because it's socialist. The reason why we should do something is never, should never be because like alone it's socialist, right? Like we have to have reasons why it's good and like have an idea of what it's leading toward in some more specific way than just, oh yeah, socialism. Yeah. Do people say we need Medicare for all because it's socialist or do we do they say we need Medicare for all because people are dying because they can't afford their medicine? I mean, people say everything. Yeah, but I do think you see more of the latter argument and socialism is just using that, that conversation as a descriptor. I used to use the word less and I've started using it more because I think, and of course I've just written a book that you know sort of claims the, the actual value of embracing the word and, and that it has content. And I I actually have come to find it useful because when you're not using it in a circular way, it does capture some very meaningful distinctions between where we stand and the vision that we have and sort of just the generic progressive left. I mean, it it helps to make clear what the dividing line between someone like Bernie Sanders and someone like Elizabeth Warren is, not just because there's a difference in the term that they use, but because the socialists historically have always been the ones that had you know, a critique of the existence of a small owning class and a large working class, which is why someone like Bernie doesn't believe in the existence of billionaires and someone like Warren does believe that, that billionaires should exist. Many terms get watered down. Left can get watered down. Progressive can get watered down. Socialism has actually been quite hard to water down because there's such a long history and there is a socialist political tradition that is, I think, a very good one that has been utopian and has been radical and has been class conscious and those are the sorts of things that are captured and they also help actually clarify what unites the things that we're pushing for in many different realms because you can give people you could say oh we stand for these 10 different policies and it can be hard for people to see what the sort of unifying thread between those different policies are if you just say well here's a long list of good things but socialism sort of captures how you i mean this is the case that i try and make the book it captures like how we look at the world differently and how we develop different kinds of solutions and what the sort of thing that they have in common is 
minutes. That book is available now. Yeah, okay, cool. <laughs> Sorry, Nathan, we got, we, uh... You got, we got distracted, distracted by the looks of it. I noticed that while I was speaking, instead of listening to my eloquent points about the definition of socialism, my colleagues were engaged in a discussion on the chat page in which they give a series of variations on the name... Pete Davis, including Seat Davis, Wheat Davis, Feet Davis, Pleat Davis, We Got the Beat Davis, Neat Davis, Street Davis, Turn Up the Heat Davis, and Meat Davis. I like Feet Davis. Thanks all. Thanks me. all. Thanks for listening. We were listening. We were listening. It's just that we all went to your talks. and yeah. Well, not all of us. How about the book? Uh, Most of us. This stays in, by the way. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> no, but I, I, I do, to, 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 to sort of follow up on that, I do agree. It, it's, a, it's actually sort of interesting because, it, so you talk about this in the book as well, but I feel a little bit torn. On one hand, it feels like a, almost a little bit dishonest to start using the word socialism more just because it is now more popular, but it actually seems also like the best reason to start using socialism more in that people actually relate to it more. And it's actually a better descriptor now than it once was. I'm, I'm moved by that reasoning. Yeah. As it's become more popular, I began to think, oh, this is actually quite useful. And it's gotten to the point where it's a fight worth, worth having. And the same way, like, I think the word communist, perhaps the fight would take, it would take so long to reclaim that word that I'm, I'm, I think maybe let's not bother. We're gonna get angry boys. Well, some communists. I have an opinion on the uh, on the reclamation, particularly of the hammer and sickle. A because it's like kind of lame in my opinion. B because it's like not worth it, and C it doesn't make sense because the reason they chose the hammer and sickle at that time were because those were the tools that actual people worked with, whereas no one in 2019 or very few people have actually touched like a hand sickle. So I always think like Speak if you were for gonna. Yourself. <laughs> If you were going to have like a 2019 equivalent of like the two things that people work with, it would be what like like a cash register and a keyboard. Like I don't yeah. know. Like that makes a bad flag. Steering wheel. A steering wheel. Is it just like a phone and then like a car with a loan outstanding on it? <laughs> Wait, but okay, so I have a question then. So like maybe that's not the symbol, but like the other thing that leftists online seem to like is the guillotine. How do you feel about the guillotine? I don't like them. They make me uncomfortable because they chop heads off. I have some extremely cute guillotine earrings, and I wore them to Nathan's launch party, and they got many compliments. So, oh, I have guillotine earrings, earrings too. <laughs> yeah, it's a, cool, cool kids have guillotine earrings. Here's cool. the thing: guillotine <laughs> earrings seem great. I love guillotine earrings, and they look good. Also, guillotines seem terrifying. Well, the guillotine earring is small. It's not going to hurt, except very tiny people, and they weren't functional. No, I think it's a little bit funny to have a threat that obviously we're not intending to actually use. Probably is it that obvious? Uh, probably, probably. <laughs> you, know, you know, you can, but you gotta keep it out kidding, there. But as not a kidding, thing, no. Yeah, well, you got because like, like it could go that way. You know, if you don't behave, I think it's a good. To circle back to the interview that Lyda and I did with Mike Duncan recently, in which he made a very good point, which is like the guillotine was mostly not used on rich people during the French Revolution. It was mostly used on like the original revolutionaries and poor people, like thousands and thousands of poor people, like in the Vendée and stuff. So I don't know. But also, I don't killing like it. people is bad. Killing people is bad. Killing people's bad. Killing rich people's bad. Killing poor people's bad. We should leave the heads on the body. What'd they do to the rich people? Well, a lot of the rich people were able to run away. Yeah, the rich people escaped. Some, some rich people did get it. Yeah, a couple. The king, mostly. It was just kind of a dumbass. I can't remember if it was some member of the... I think it was... Maybe it was the king. My French Revolution history is, like, pretty 
Rusty, but he tried to escape and then he was just found by like a postman. Yeah, it was like, the king. in like Belgium. Yeah. They reckon yeah, recognized his face because he's like on the currency. Because he's on the coins. <laughs> he's on the fucking coin. <laughs> Don't try to escape if you're on the coins. That's actually a good reason to put capitalists and monarchists on the on money now. Actually, you know, we've been trying to put like Harriet Tubman on the twenty. We should put Jeff Bezos on the twenty so everyone can know who he is when the revolution comes. I like the idea of killing people. I don't care who they are. Jeff Bezos will die crashing into his colony on the moon. It's gonna be fine. It's gonna be funny. With Elon Musk. With Elon Musk, yeah, gonna... I didn't say to kill well, him. They're gonna fight. I was anti killing. I'm just saying you gotta know who he is. Yeah, okay. Is it time for the next voice battle? <laughs> yeah, did we did we have a conclusion? I would conclude that guillotine earrings are cute. Guillotine memes kind of fun. Obviously not very serious. And let's yes, let's keep in mind historical context. Blah blah blah. Right, Hello, ready? Current Affairs. This is Jacob in Spokane, Washington, calling to ask, what are your Green New Deal breakers? Apologies if this has already been covered on an episode I missed, but with the Green New Deal, we know that a massive jobs program is needed to transform our transportation and energy systems in the short period of time that we have in order to avert climate catastrophe. But any big program that contains enough to solve this problem is going to involve some horse trading in committees about what goes in and what gets cut, which means that there's always a risk of some bad things getting funded and some good things getting cut. For example, with the original New Deal, we had created this dam building race between the Corps of Engineers and the Bureau of Reclamation, which I think was the biggest mistake of that era, as it forced thousands of Native American people from their homes, eliminated native fish and bird habitats for close to a billion animals, and involved a lot of really questionable economics concerning the value of irrigating high desert regions. Anyway, so new impounding hydropower, that is dams, all new dams are my Green New Deal breaker. If the Green New Deal contained big dam proposals, I would be off that train. So I'm asking, what are yours? Are there any environmental programs or environment-adjacent programs, infrastructure programs, that if funded by a Green New Deal, it would lose your support? Anyway, thanks. I uh, love the show. Fuck, I love that question. Okay, that was Jacob with Green New Deal breakers. Or is there any environmental program or project that you can see possibly being involved in the Green New Deal that would lose your support? Yes, actually. One thing I think we need to be really, really careful about is geoengineering projects, because that it will be very easy for that to go hand in hand with Green New Deal stuff. There's like all different kinds of geoengineering, and some of it is much less sketchy than others. Like carbon capture is probably fine. What is geoengineering? Geoengineering is this idea that we can, we can sort of mass alter the climate by a number of different technological solutions. One of them is is carbon capture, which some of it is it involves chemicals, but some of it just involves planting a lot of trees. Planting a lot of trees seems fine. Some of it involves like dumping iron filings in the ocean or like shooting sulfur dioxide into the clouds. Stuff that we really can't test in advance and uh, could be extremely fucking bad and have like terrible consequences. Or like moving the sun a little further away. Yeah, yeah. We're doing like a Mr. Burns shield kind of thing could be really bad. And that's the kind of thing that especially if some billionaire funds it, I think could easily, you know, get folded in. And there's there's just there aren't any take backs once you've like dumped a bunch of iron filings in the ocean. Again, it's really hard to like test that stuff in advance. So billionaire uh, vanity projects to save the world by themselves are something to be really avoided. I appreciate the call about any time anybody calls to talk about dams. I do feel like there's this there's this category of calls that we get sometimes where somebody will call us and will ask us a question about something that they clearly know far more about than we do. And I sort of wish like they should just tell us what to think. I don't know. Like, yeah, I agree. Like a bunch of new dams are bad. That seemed really harmful. I don't know enough about this to have. You know a lot about dams. Though. Yeah, you know so much. Shut up, Sparky. I'm sure the dams. Yeah, but he made the dams point. Like that was <laughs> a good point. I don't know. That was that the only good. Tell us the only good. Tell us more about dams, Sparky. What about the? So the other thing that the caller sort of talked about was like, 
displacing native peoples from their lands. And I could imagine population redistribution pieces of the Green New Deal. I just want to throw that on the table. I don't know how I would feel about that. I'm against stripping people out of their homes, but also a bunch of people live in LA and should live elsewhere. So I don't don't know. So forced displacement from LA? From LA. I'm okay with forcibly displacing Sparky (laughs) and bringing him back to DC. (laughs) This is mostly to get Sparky back on the East Coast. One point that I think we don't, it doesn't even require you to have looked a great deal into the impacts of various technological solutions, but is clearly going to come up as a possible deal breaker, is the pressure that there's going to be to compromise on the justice components of the Green New Deal and to foreground all the climate mitigation without the other half of it. So the big other half of the Green New Deal is the reason it has a lot of the jobs program components and, and economic justice parts is because they want, are trying to avoid the kind of popular backlash that comes when you impose policies like carbon taxes that fall on working people and that mean that people who have the least money end up bearing the most of the cost for climate mitigation. And that is the stuff that is easily going to slip out of focus because you can already see when people criticize the Green New Deal, they say, well, why do we need all this justice stuff in, as well as the environment stuff? Yeah. What's That's a great justice point. ever done for us? I actually, after my whole thing before, I did think of one. <laughs> see, it's a sparking... The, the, oh, no, no, we need to talk about this because you, you, do, you do like the opposite of a guy thing, which like, no, again, normally this would like be annoying in the opposite direction, where rather than claim expertise where you don't have it, you refuse to claim it where you do have it and you have plenty of good ideas. And you're like, oh, no, I don't have anything to say about this. And then like and then you've got tons of really interesting things to say. It's very annoying. Very okay, annoyed I'm sorry. By it. I apologize. Thank you. Thank you. Here's, you the, here's the thing. Here's the thing that I was going to say, though. I mean, this obviously isn't just a Green New Deal thing, but one of my sort of like pet anger issues that you all have heard me rant about before, but I don't think I've done so on the podcast, is this um, PACE program, which is like in a few states, including big in California, which is property assessed clean energy loans. And basically, like it's a system set up in order to get people excited about quote unquote access to credit and like clean energy improvements. But actually, it's just this big shell game where these loan companies are making billions of dollars by giving poor people loans that they can't afford for like solar panels and stuff that often don't even work. And I think that there's a big risk in the Green New Deal of various moneyed interests, basically monetizing people's excitement for this stuff in order to extract money out of mostly poor people. You know, the way that these things happen and the way that it happened in California is basically they can come in and they can recite these mantras of like, oh, we're going to create more energy efficiency and open up access to credit. And everybody's like, oh, yeah, that sounds great without actually thinking about what it means or how it works. I think that, you know, there's a big risk and you really have to actually (laughs) you know, for how much money the state has put into this stupid program that's causing people to lose their homes like they could have just given a bunch of solar panels away for free right you know i think the for lack of a better term the neoliberal threat to the green new deal is something that we have to take seriously yeah what a really what a really really good point that you know you could have made a lot of you know didn't have to do all those caveats earlier but it's a great point thank you sparky i'm so sorry Lida. thank you you should be sorry Never apologize for your great Just ideas. Like Sparky is the the term user. So he said the discourse. He said neoliberalism. Yeah, yeah, this is me today. Apparently, <laughs> I'm like we shouldn't use terms, and then I just use the fucking terms. Any more thoughts on this? No. Okay. All right. This one is a, a two parter. So there's a small, fun sized question, and then there's a more important question. Hi, current affairs. This is Miriam, a student calling from the Boston area. You guys have turned me from a liberal into a leftist. So thank you. <laughs> Last night, I actually had a dream that was mostly a convoluted murder mystery plot, 
But towards the end, I sat down right next to Pete Buttigieg and started ranting about him right to his face. I was wondering, <laughs> um, what's the weirdest political dream that you guys have had? Have you ever predicted the future in any of them, for example? I also have a more serious question. Half a year ago, when I was supporting Warren, I persuaded my parents to support her as well. But now that I'm supporting Bernie, I'm having trouble convincing them to switch candidates as well. Do you have some advice for how to attract upper-middle-class suburban liberal Jewish parents to Bernie instead of Warren? Thank you so much for doing what you do. Keep it up. Okay. It's my favorite caller we've ever had. <laughs> no, best. I liked that that cactus one. I liked the drunk picnic. But we've this had good. a lot of good callers, but this all was callers great. are good. That we one was love all nice, our callers <laughs> equally. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> From each caller according to their needs. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that was Miriam asking question number one: Have you ever had a political dream or predicted something politically in a dream and the second question is how to kind of convince parents particularly sort of suburban liberal kind of parents towards bernie nathan are you going to talk about your i'm sure you've had a political dream i've had many political dreams i'm just trying to figure which which of my <laughs> political dreams is worth, worth discussing. Through. i would recommend that anyone interested in my political dreams read my book of transcribed don't dreams say the name. don't say the name don't say the <laughs> say name the, say the name the name of which I will not mention because it's revolting. I recently had a Bernie Sanders dream that turned out to be very accurate. It wasn't a prophecy, but... Let's just, hear it. It was just that I had to interview... I finally got an interview with Bernie Sanders. I was going to ask him about immigration, and, and Brianna Rennix was very excited. And then I couldn't... I, I was supposed to attach his lav mic, and then I, I tried to get it attached, tried to get it attached, and then I accidentally snapped it in half, and he was furious and left, and we never got to ask him about immigration. And then I talked to Brianna Joy Gray the next day, and she said, he hates lav mics, and if you'd fiddled with his lav mic and broken it, he would. that's exactly how he would have reacted. <laughs> accurate prophecy I have many Bernie dreams and how should this caller convince her parents Nathan this is the point where you do the plug you do the plug you do the plug oh by buying the copies (laughs) of the book why you should be a socialist by Nathan J. Robinson now out from St. Martin's Press interesting that sounds like the ideal book for available in audiobook and hardcover wherever Good books are sold. Alternatively to trolling them with Nathan's book, one thing I, w- I might be interested in trying out on some liberals in my life is that, like, if you want 20 to 24 to be a time where the administration manages to accomplish something that sort of looks like Elizabeth Warren's plans, then you should vote for Bernie Sanders. If you want 20 to 24 to look a lot more like Buttigieg to Biden, then you should vote for Warren. Because the point is that you dream big and you get maybe a little less, and then you have to make your peace with you know, whatever sort of negotiated deal you end up with. And the reality is that Elizabeth Warren dreams smaller than Bernie Sanders. And so once her plans get, you know, hacked down and chopped up in Congress, they're going to look a lot different on the ground. And they're going to be less satisfying than whatever she's proposing. And what she's proposing now is already less satisfying than what Bernie Sanders is proposing. She's also shown herself to be very malleable even when she sort of doesn't have to. And we're seeing her do this dance with Medicare for All now, where she's starting to sound a lot more like Pete Buttigieg. There's a lot of emphasis on choice 
and single payer for those who maybe want it, you know, and we're not seeing that from Bernie Sanders. And I think that that's the kind of like tiptoeing that you can expect from her in the future. And, you know, if you're if you're looking to go back to something that's sort of like the status quo or at least the status quo that Barack Obama left behind, then maybe an Elizabeth Warren is who you vote for. But if you want more than that, then vote for Sanders. Anyway, that's the pitch I'm going to try on people. We'll see. Yeah, my pitch is is somewhat similar, but my pitch focuses on kind of the idea that, look, we've tried really good technocrats for a while now. People who like come up with really good policies and try to implement them and, oh, no, they just can't do them. And what we need is something that actually builds power so that, look, in the ideal vision of Warren, and I think a lot of people think this way, like, you know, Warren and Bernie believe kind of the same things. Warren might be really good at pushing it through, but there also might be a Republican backlash, and then we'll have, you know, maybe eight years of Warren, and then we'll have eight years of whoever the Republican successor is. I think that's possibly likely to happen. If you think that it's just going to be a pendulum swing back and forth between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, then you actually need to vote for Sanders and you need to support Sanders because the point of the Sanders campaign is not necessarily the presidency, but is the movement building and the organizing that's going to go that goes on around that that's going to exist across different presidencies. I think that's going to be more effective in actually getting the policies that we want pushed. He, like he's going to primary Democrats that don't fall into line. And I think that there are a bunch of other people outside of the presidency that are going to move along with that. But even if you didn't think he was going to be more effective at getting the policies done because he has movement support, He's definitely his presidency is definitely going to be better at generating power that will exist as a counterforce to a possible Republican presidency or that will actually potentially stop that sort of Republican pendulum swing. So I think Elizabeth Warren could very well be fine, but I think, you know, both in the short and if you're doing actual long term thinking, then you have to support sort of the Sanders movement, not just the Sanders campaign. And just if you want a longer version of that kind of argument, you should check out the article in Current Affairs, Why You Should Take a Chance on the Socialist by Paul Water Smith, which I think you know makes this power building case pretty clear in a more detailed way. That's all very thoughtful. I have found relatives of my parents' generation very susceptible to memes. So you could also send them some oh. good memes. Are they meme meme susceptible? Oh yeah. Facebook memes all the time. And it's like any meme that kind of like scratches an itch, no matter what the sort of political valence is often, like they'll kind of internalize and share it. So your meme game can really be effective. I feel like we're dodging the dream question. (laughs) (laughs) I I do have a cool dream. But are there kind of meme that doesn't work? Some boomers get really upset by boomer memes. Is that like, is there there a type to avoid? I haven't employed this with much success. I've just been noticing it and thinking about it as a strategy. But I think that like, you know, you just got to observe. I think you got to observe what sorts of memes catch the attention of the person you're trying to convince and then, you know, increase the supply of good ones in that vein. So people are just saying no to me on the chat. <laughs> no, we're saying I, meme Davis. No, no. <laughs> oh, meme. Oh, I missed meme Davis. Yes. <laughs> if you want to do memes of Pete Davis, please, please do that. I'd be convinced. I'd be convinced of just about anything. Lida, did you say you had a dream? Oh, yeah. I don't know if this is counts as a political dream, but I had this really amazing dream that I almost want to, like, turn into, like, a, a movie. Uh, Steve Bannon and Richard Spencer were vampires, kind of. Like, Steve Bannon was wearing this <laughs> this cursed set of, like, Turkish armor that he had that was, like, 16th century Turkish armor, and it made him immortal. <laughs> um, anyway, I was part of a squad 
of like vampire hunters hunting him, and, and Boots Riley was on the squad. Okay, and he oh, hell yeah. he threw a spear and he killed Richard Spencer. <laughs> he like, got him through the chest, and it was really cool. That's awesome. Gorka has to be in this. Can we get this illustrated? <laughs> was this dream written by Dave Eggers? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's coming up. It's coming up. It, it was. It was not Boots the Riley. No, he was a more creative. We can turn this into a comic for current affairs, you know. Boots Riley could turn this into a movie. I know. It was right around the time Sorry to Bother You came out. That's why he was on my mind. Yeah. That's why Boots Riley yeah. was on your I mind. Let's be real. <laughs> he has a great song about guillotines, incidentally. Oh, such a good jam. About CEOs, or is this a different song about No, that's not, it's not 500 Ways to Kill a CEO. It's We Got the Guillotine. Ah, uh, okay. That's a good one, too. Yeah, I forgot about that one. I had the worst erotic dream involving a CEO. I woke up ashamed. <laughs> I woke up ashamed. Uh, the CEO, CEO? The CEO was Jamie Dimon. Oh. Oh. I feel like there's a lot to unpack there. Head. I'm sorry. I'm open. I'm taking therapist recommendations. <laughs> Subconsciouses are wild. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's cool. We're not judging. All right. Are we ready for the next one? Oh, I'd just say one more tiny thing, which is that my parents have moved left over the last couple of years a bit, and it seems to have been largely in response to me just slowly trying to make them understand why I am so deeply invested the way I am, you know, just trying slowly to show them things from my perspective and to listen to, you know, so like these things are slow processes. I don't think there's going to be a magic thing that is going to help you. I mean, other than the book that is going to help you flip the switch and and get them over to Bernie. But I think, I think we have a real responsibility for relatives that we have good relationships with and who actually do want to understand things from our perspective to show them why the political moment feels so urgent to us and why this feels like such an absolutely critical election to us. Okay, are we good? Yeah, wait, Ashling, do you have a dream? I don't think I do. Actually, in Ash- the, which is funny because like Ashling is actually, the word means like a sort of sexually charged dream, but I don't... <laughs> yeah. Having an Ashling? Yeah. Is that how you would use it? So Vanessa had an Ashling about Jamie Dimon. <laughs> <laughs> Cursed sentence. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I can't, I honestly can't think of one. Like, I've definitely had dreams where I woke up and I was like, that would be a really clever idea for a short story. And you like write it down at like 2 a.m. And then you wake up at 7 a.m. And you're like, oh, I'm so fucking stupid. <laughs> this goes in the trash now. No, I wake up at 7 a.m. And I go, I'm turning that into a book now. And I have no regrets. It's publishable. I'm just going to bring Brianna Rennix's spirit in because I think she and I have very similar dreams, which is just court dreams all the time. Oh, yeah. Is it like court, but you're naked or court, but your teeth are falling out? Is that like It's a- court, but like embarrassing, awful things happen, which is pretty much regular court. So, but I did when when Kamala Harris was still a candidate, had a, had a lot of Kamala Harris in court in sort of variety of, of situations, dreams. Brianna just seems to have dreams where she just has more cases than she already has, and she has to file things in the fictitious cases. But she said the judges were more lenient in her dreams. (laughs) (laughs) I think we both have a lot of, like, I filed that late, and now everything's falling apart dreams. I always have these dreams because I'm really bad at waking up in the morning, and I will have a dream where I, like... I sort of half, I wake up and I realize, oh, I've got to 
get up, but then I fall back asleep, but I dream in extreme detail that I'm getting ready. So I actually dream the like going to like shower and like get dressed and like get all my stuff together. And then I wake up and I realize it's 40 minutes later and I actually didn't do any of that stuff. That's the kicker right there. Just stay in bed. Just never like, what's the point? You, you It's already done. It's too late. <laughs> yeah. Try again next day. Yeah. <laughs> I just found the depressing part of Brianna's dream when she said in the dream world was better because the court sent an email saying, we're very sorry. We decided to reject your filing as if they were literary magazine rejecting a short story and that is a courtesy she would never actually get in the real world (laughs) what do you think pete Buttigieg dreams of spreadsheets zeros and ones domination yeah just the the white house yeah yeah it's been the same dream ever since it's just a static image it doesn't even move it just just shuts off in words (laughs) all right next Hi, current affairs. My name is Grace, and I'm a political science and classical studies student at Western Washington University. I'm a huge fan of the podcast, especially Lighted's proposal to launch all men into the sun. Yes! It's something I'm hoping to start a working group on in my yes! local YDSA. Um, I love this episode on antiquity y'all did with Dan Walden. And so my question is, if you had to recommend one piece of classical literature for a leftist to read today, what would it be and why? Thanks for all the great work y'all do. Okay, so that question was, what piece of classical literature would you recommend for a leftist to read and why? And I'm going to branch out. She mentioned that she loves antiquity and classical studies, but we can branch out. It doesn't have to be from antiquity, I think. Any kind of old book I think we can go for. From way back in December 2019, there was this book that came out called Why You Should Be a Socialist. And (laughs) that's the third plug. (laughs) We're so good at this. We can make a movie. I mean, I do have kind of a 19th century socialist vibe. Somebody online, Nathan, I don't know if you saw this, it was a reply to you, described you as Frodo on his way to a Great Gatsby party. And (laughs) it's just the most perfect description of what you look like. There have been a number of descriptions. Light, I feel like you were best positioned to actually answer this question. Well, the, the, I, 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 what I said on, on the pod is I, I talked about the Baki, which is this play by Euripides that is wonderful and everybody should read it. It's really, really fun and fascinating. It's a play about power and religion and family. It's really intense. It has a really brutal ending. There's a piece of it that's actually missing. I don't know if we mentioned this on the pod, but the version that was you know saved throughout, throughout the centuries or the various versions, there's um, a speech by Dionysus that's missing at the very end where he kind of justifies the crazy, awful shit that he's just done. And I think it's kind of cool that it's missing and that you don't actually get his perspective because one of the, the few things that you get him saying and him justifying what he's done, he so no, he, he, he says one or two things to justify what he's done and then his, his aunt, who is, he's really he's really hurt. She says, should a god be like a proud man in his rage? And then there's the speech that was supposed to be in there that's missing. But the fact that he, you don't get a counter-argument, because it really isn't a counter-argument that like a powerful person could just act like a complete asshole and do something really, really terrible, even though he's actually kind of justified in what's going on. It's great. And it's, it's a line, I th- her line is something I think about a lot. It's just a really good play. It's really fun. Have you ever seen it performed? I've seen it once. It's not done very often. It's, it's really, really magnificent. Well, the anarchist in me is tempted to say, like, the Socratic dialogues just because he was such, like, a fucking gadfly and, you know, they made him eat poison because he was so annoying. <laughs> That's what I was going to say, too, because, well, Nathan and I used to read these out loud yes. with each other. We loved reading Socratic dialogues. They're really fun. What I like, they always end with the 
person on the other end of it just being like, uh, look, Socrates, I, got, I gotta go. I've got like a thing. <laughs> <laughs> but it was nice to, you, we'll, we'll catch up some, t- you know, uh, I'm very busy this week, but you know, maybe, maybe we'll catch up soon. Eli, you seem to have modeled a lot of your interactions with other humans on the way, Socrates. <laughs> well, that's uh, an incredibly uh, backhanded compliment, I think. Contributing gadfly Eli Massey. That, I'm putting no, that. I mean, I, I think there's something, there's a sort of anarchistic ethos there of just like, you know, not being too arrogant, but also um, not taking anything anyone has to say for granted and just being kind of persistent, even when you know you're really pissing the other person off and they find you a pest, and they find you an annoyance, you don't let that stop you from asking the uh, critical questions that need to be asked. So I don't know, that, that feels like a kind of socialistic and anarchistic ethos that, that feels important. For me, dialogues like poetry or like other forms of writing that are not just pure fiction or nonfiction feel more alive. They have a rhythm, they have a flow, they have a, a sort of back and forth that I think is is lovely. Nathan and I on on a our podcast about anarchism oh, talked yeah. about um, at the cafe, which is a series of dialogues written by Enrico Malatesta, an Italian anarchist, and I think they have the same sort of flow. But they're actually, I don't think there's not that many good dialogues in between, kind of like Plato, Socrates and Malatesta. You and I were always trying to find good dialogues and there's there's very few. At the Cafe is fantastic, but people don't really write dialogues. What was that book that we found? We found like absurd conversations, like Orwell and Stalin or something having a... Um, No, it was H.G. Wells and Stalin once did an interview and it's transcribed. So one of us put... We always used to, you know, I would play H.G. Wells and Orwell would play Stalin or vice versa. I would play (laughs) H.G. (laughs) Wells. Yeah, no, that's I, I I agree. The dialogues are good. I also just I, just as another plug, this is which is much less old, but I also like Marriage of Heaven and Hell. Yeah, that's a great one. Can you say a little bit about that? The way that it was pitched to me was like is William Blake has this comment about Milton where he says that Paradise Lost is where Milton keeps like protesting about how much he hates the devil. Um, and actually he, he clearly like really is into the devil. And that made me really like William Blake and Marriage of Heaven and Hell, I think has this kind of like counter Christian counter power ethos that I really like. Yeah, Blake's work has that all over where he finds a lot of dynamism and power in the figure of the devil who he often kind of equates or like physically like puts together with with Jesus. But then the Old Testament God for him is like this this dominant father figure who's actually like a shithead and, and shouldn't be listened to. And it's a it's a neat spin. It's a, it's cool. Great art too. Blake is such a weird. He's such a weird guy to study because we had to kind of study his poems when I was doing my GCSEs, which is like your, your high school exams. So we did songs of innocence and experience, which are basically kind of if you haven't read them, they're very short, simple, almost nursery rhyme style poems. And so when you read them, especially if you're like fourteen, the impression you get if you don't get taught any of the context is like oh this guy was just doing some cool little nursery rhymes about like how he likes um he thinks like this flower is uh uh really sweet and red and uh nice looking and then it's only if you have a teacher that bothers to teach you the historical context that you find out he was incredibly radical he had all these you know he's super for the abolition of slavery and for the equality of women and all people and he had visions and he was you know very very a very unique and highly political figure which you don't really get if you just get handed this little book of poetry that's just like oh the tiger in the cave like it's something that's 
very highly dependent on who teaches you, <laughs> really. Yeah, and he, he printed all this stuff kind of like by himself. I think him and his wife, and this like little press. And then there's there's not that many copies, and there's like hand colored copies of it because it's he couldn't get like major distribution because his stuff is completely insane. So it's it's not too different from current affairs. We have better distribution model, but and not enough poems. Not enough poems. I agree. Uh, one, one last plug that I'll make is Aristophanes' plays. The reason that I like them is less because of their themes, although sometimes there are good themes and sometimes there are less good themes, but mostly because it makes me really confident that humans have been kind of the same always. Like, they've always liked poop jokes, and they've always <laughs> liked just, like, silliness and, like, slapstick comedy. Aristophanes was conservative, though. Yeah, but there's still there's still some weird shit in there. And it's like, this is also part of a discussion Nathan and I, and, and I have had in the past. But, like, people talk about Mark Twain as being, like, a great American humorist. And I've never found Mark Twain very funny because I, I think he's, he's, he's really boring. And then people will always respond, like, oh, well, you don't understand humor from a different time. And I'm like, actually, like, people were pretty goddamn funny in, like, ancient Greece. And pretty people were pretty funny in, like, whatever, you know, France in, like, the 15th and 16th century. But Mark Twain's just a boring asshole. So... <laughs> <laughs> that's just me but but i just it makes me very happy that like humor is largely unchanged over time sophocles is like this as well and then you know like the misanthrope i think is a very funny play and so it, like i just think like there's good humor and there's and there's not good humor yeah one of my favorite plays is oh shit what is it called it's not the way of the world yeah i think it's the uh the country wife by william Wycherley, which is a 17th century play where a guy pretends that he lost his dick in an accident so that he can hang around people's wives and then he can bang all their wives and that's the plot which is funnier than mark twain I, I would argue. <laughs> Ooh, controversial for its sexual explicitness even at the time nice this episode is so horny. <laughs> <laughs> you started it off with your, your Jamie Diamond sex dream, which we were not judging you for, but kind of judging you for. His hair's good. <laughs> Mine is not actually classical, but it's, you know, old-ish. I'm going to recommend The Ragged Trousered Philanthropists, which is an early 20th century kind of socialist novel about a bunch of of day laborers and it's not particularly like a high-minded or well it's high-minded in the sense that it's pretty bluntly pro-socialist and it's just about a bunch of guys who they have jobs and they suck and they don't have any money and they keep having to borrow money there's some great little explanations about how at the time obviously they had things like company script where if you got paid you only got paid in sort of tokens that you could spend at other places and explaining how that's a sham but also how in a way like all money is kind of a script there's some great little kind of parables in there stories about people whose lives are just ruined by these tiny little things there's a, a guy who has a um he has a pocket watch and his pocket watch breaks and so he just can't get up in the morning because he doesn't know what time he has to go into work and so he loses work and it's all just loads of little stories like that and yeah it's just a good uh, explanation that's kind of still very relevant to today and how work is shit and it should be better i have one short pitch for candide by voltaire it's uh, short it's time. funny it's very satirical and it's proof that people were still funny hundreds of years ago so maybe 
Mark Twain should be better. Hashtag, <laughs> hashtag being better. Okay, but in Mark Twain's defense, wasn't he like a staunch anti-imperialist? He had that going for him. Doesn't make him funny. Yeah, sure. but there's a lot of sure. staunch anti-imperialists. Like, there's lots of anti-imperialists that are still boring assholes. Like that's... <laughs> in fact, perhaps the preponderance of... He should have yeah. stuck to that. It's his reputation... As a humorist. That's the sign. If someone's called a humorist. Yes. Humorist, it means they're not funny <laughs> enough. <laughs> <laughs> He's the funny. best of all possible humorists. <laughs> American humorists in particular are really... Yeah, it's just like the literary version of a New Yorker cartoon, isn't it, really? Except for our New Yorker cartoons, because they have uh, cats. And severed heads. And severed heads. We're doing fake New Yorker cartoons in the mag now, they're great. Yes. Current Affairs has begun to publish dark and twisted and absurd things. So here's my question. If they're fake New Yorkers, cart- I mean, are they fake New Yorkers cartoons or are they just real Current Affairs cartoons? Deep. Right? <laughs> are they I, a process or a thing? I think, <laughs> no, <not too laughs> we have faked our way into the real thing. We should just own it. They do make you laugh. So they're, they're, I, I think that's qualitatively different. We can't say that because sometimes Jason, who is yes. one of our top five favorite cartoonists ever does draw for them too and when he does it it is good that is and true we love him. hashtag <laughs> not all new yorker cartoons. <laughs> all right does anyone have any last comments i'll just plug 19th century utopian novels like uh, edward bellamy's looking backward and william morris's news from nowhere i'm very pro utopian novels it's sad that they've died out they're a big part of 19th century socialism news from nowhere for example provides a real beautiful vision of what a decommodified world where you spend lots of time making things only to give them away would look like and uh, i hope this tradition gets revived unless it gets in the way of getting the issue out (laughs) (laughs) the issue this joke is just for current affairs managing editor lida gold (laughs) who watched nathan publish an entire fake memoir Instead of finishing the issue. If you're wondering why the issue is late, ladies and gentlemen. Has any issue of ever of current affairs ever not been trying. I'm really trying, you guys. They all come out. (laughs) And that's our show. (laughs) They come out. Everyone should read Nathan's free memoir. It is a labor of hell. Indisputable. That's got to be the next uh, on the next issue. It came out. It came. If this one comes out, it'll be a Christmas miracle. Let's do that. God bless us, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And on that note, I think we should say goodbye to finance editor Sparky Abraham. Uh, Goodbye. Associate editor Vanessa A.B. Happy holidays, everyone. And if you hate the holidays, we're almost out of them. Legal editor Oren Nimney. Goodbye, everyone. Contributing editor Eli Massey. Bye. Amusements and managing editor Lida Gold. Bye and good luck on the war on Christmas. It's not going well. <laughs> Editor in chief Nathan J. Robinson. Merry Christmas, happy holidays, happy New Year. I've been Podmaster General Ashlyn McRae. Happy holidays to all of you out there. Have a good New Year, Christmas, Hanukkah, whatever you're doing, and good night. Let's do some footnotes. According to Gallup polls. About half of all millennials and members of Gen Z view socialism in a positive light. 66% viewed capitalism in a positive light in 2010, but this sank to just 51% in 2019. For baby boomers, capitalism has actually become more popular, with 58% viewing it positively in 2010 and 68% in 2019. Okay, boomers.
Although the guillotine is upsetting to some, at the time of its invention it was applauded for being a far more humane method of execution than the prolonged and painful methods that had been used before. The guillotine was used by the French state to execute criminals until 1981. You can use the term crepuscule to refer to dawn or dusk if you want to be pretentious. You could also use the Scottish term gloaming, which means the same thing and is much prettier. Or you could say evenfall, or if you want to get really poetic, smokefall. According to rhymezone.com, there are 403 words and phrases which rhyme with peat, including cheat, eat, sheet, deceit, crab meat, trick or treat, and Carolina parakeet. Thanks to Dan Thorne for editing this episode. Thanks to you, the listener at home, for supporting us. You can support us further by becoming one of our patrons at www.patreon.com slash currentaffairs, or by leaving us a positive review on iTunes, or by emailing Nathan and telling him to fix his goddamn clock. Our theme song is The Gherkin Train by Joe Smith and the Spicy Pickles. I'm Letta Gold. This has been Current Affairs. Happy holidays, everyone, especially your uncle who hates it when you say happy holidays.